Hi there, and welcome to another OSL podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Improving the outcomes for patients post-cardiac arrest has been the subject of intense debate and research in recent years. Therapeutic hypothermia burst onto the scene early in the 21st century and has widely been adopted into practice. However, questions about the quality of evidence has led to an ongoing debate about its role. The Targeted Temperature Management, or TTM2, trial has recently been released to, hopefully, end the speculation. Manoj Saxena is an intensivist from Sydney, Australia, and participated in the TTM2 trial. He joins me today to discuss the results. Manoj, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hi, Todd. Great to be here. Great to be here. Now, uh, the concept of therapeutic hypothermia has been around for, for some time. Why was there still some conjecture about its place in our armamentarium leading into the TTM2 trial? Yeah, leading. So I think the key, the key thing that I would say here is that those trials back in 2002 the Harker trial and Stephen Bernard's trial were really important um, for a number of number of reasons, which we can talk about. But they they really were phase two studies. Do you know they they they're initial proof of concept studies. Um, Stephen Bernard's, you know, was a pre-hospital intervention that started, you know, um, and a very small sample size, 70 or so patients with pseudo-randomization. And um, the Harker trial, again, relatively small, 200-odd patients, um, suggested an effect, but really they, they should have been thought of as phase two trials. And I think what was really exciting about that time, you know, as a senior registrar at that time, it's an exciting time for intensive care because we had that, those two studies, you know, that suddenly suggested we could do something for this patient population that we, we really didn't offer much for before other than just supportive care and time. Um, but then, you know, there was tight glycemic control, there was activated protein C, there was the RIVERS study that suggested early goal-directed therapy. So it was a really exciting time in the early 2000s. We suddenly had these things that we could do. And, and I think people like doing things that might be helpful and um, have a low risk of harm. You know, so I think it was reasonable to do that. But I think over time, and Nicholas did a, a lovely systematic review, I think around 2009-10, where he appraised the evidence for hypothermia in this particular patient population. And it was very clear that the sample size was too small to be certain about the effect. There was high risk of bias. And so low levels of certainty about whether there truly was an effect. And TTM1, if you like, was a a trial that compared two different hypothermic temperatures because there didn't there wasn't really any equipoise at that time to allow a higher temperature in the control group and that showed you know as as we know a neutral effect and so really the grounds for TTM2 were were based on the Harker trial being a phase two study, and then the TTM, the initial TTM study, showing equivalence between two hypothermic temperatures, one pretty close to normothermia, but not quite normothermia. 
Um, so, so why yeah. do that again after you have the results of the TTM1 trial came out, which randomised mm. people to either, I think, 33 degrees or 36 degrees? Mm. Why was there a need for a subsequent trial? Yeah, so the need is... So all TTM showed was that 33 and 36 were equivalent. Um and the only evidence we had that 33 might be effective was the Harker and um, Bernard study. So in a way, we were basing hypothermia on evidence that wasn't up to scratch. And so we really needed to do another trial in which we had experienced sites with you know, with delivering uh, temperature control, experience sites trying to deliver hypothermia as quickly as possible, um, and a control group that was you know we decided to move the control group to what we defined as normothermia, and um, the other major design thing was to have a larger sample size, you know. Um, with a more credible reduction in mortality and assessment of neurological outcome that was more detailed as well, you know, and rigorous. Um, so the need was, the reason we had to do it is, is to really establish whether that proof of concept study, the Harker and the Bernard study, whether there was, um, whether there really was an effect with 33 degrees Celsius, you know. You could argue that the control arm in TTM2 is avoidance of fever um, yeah. as much as anything. Yes. How does fever potentially impact on neurological recovery after a cardiac arrest? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and the truth is we have um, some, you know, observational data that suggests that fever is associated with adverse outcome, you know, after a brain injury, particularly hypoxic ischemic brain injury. Um, there's really good animal data, you know, from in models of TBI and hypoxic brain injury, stroke, that fever is uh, bad for outcome, you know, worse pathology whereas and neurobehavioral outcomes in the animal models. So, so there's a signal there from animal models and observational evidence, but we don't really have a good clinical trial in any form of brain injury that shows that avoiding fever is better than allowing the natural history of the condition. Um, and I, you know, that's never been tested formally. Um, but there is a strong belief, um, you know, based on the animal models, based on the observational evidence and clinician preference that you know avoiding fever after brain injury is important and that's why we had to do the trial in that way compare 33 to avoidance of fever yeah so tell us a little bit about TTM2 what was the trial structure what was the intervention um, that uh, was implemented yeah okay so the trial structure was a um, uh, clinical trial it was randomized and um, people with hypoxic brain injury after a cardiac arrest or presumed cardiac arrest um, were randomized as quickly as possible uh, after arrival in an emergency department um, 
to receive either hypothermia or um, fever avoidance. I think we can call it that way, normothermia. Um, and the intervention, importantly, the, the hypothermic intervention, the instructions given were to try and achieve 34 degrees Celsius within 90 minutes of randomization. Um, and certainly no longer than three hours it should take to get the patient down to 33. Um, I think it's also important to, to notice that, you know, the time from the cardiac arrest to randomization often takes, and it's measured in the trial, it's, it's up to two hours. Do you know, um, so that's the time taken to get from the cardiac arrest in the community, transported by paramedics to hospital, and then alerting the system. And randomization takes two hours. So really, within five hours, you should be at target temperature. It was the the best that we felt we could do, and and that was actually what was achieved in the trial. Uh, bang on five five hours, and that's an important point and something that we could talk about in a little bit more detail. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the intervention arm. And then the control arm was to allow the temperature gradually to, to do whatever it wanted to do and get up to, if it got to 37.7 or above 37.7, then to clamp the temperature at 37.5 using a cooling device. And it's really interesting. So 100% of people, you know, got the intervention in the intervention arm and uh, about half of those in the control arm got cooling device so half didn't need it um so that was the trial structure in terms of the intervention um there was the intervention was delivered for 24 hours and then there was an additional 12 hours allowed for rewarming in the intervention arm up to 37 and for that additional 12 hours the normothermic patients were kept normothermic and then the instruction was from that 40 hours to 72 hours um, temperature should be kept normal you know in the normal range as as previously defined but in comatose patients so patients that remain comatose so if the patient was awake and had a temperature and you know interacting um not not ventilated you could allow the temperature to do whatever it was doing but if they were still comatose and receiving sedation then control of temperature up to 72 hours the, i think the other really interesting part this is an unblinded intervention so you can't blind the staff at the bedside but what you can do is have very careful um blinded assessment of you know prognostication and also very conservative measures for withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies because it is possible with an unblinded intervention for clinicians to favor a type of um, pathway depending on what intervention was received so we had a very conservative withdrawal of care pathway and also a blinded assessment of neuroprognostication at, at 96 hours or onwards um, uh, so that was the main part of the study. And then I guess that the main outcomes were mortality assessed at um, six months and also neurological outcome. And what's really interesting here in, in the power calculation, we knew that we predicted the mortality to be around 50%, which gives you really good um 
when you do the sample size calculation, you end up with needing 2,000 patients. But because 50% of patients survive, that gives you adequate power for assessing neurological outcome. Um, the Hyperion trial, by contrast, had an 85% mortality rate because it was all comers with cardiac arrest. And there was a difference in neurological outcome, you know, in the 15% that survived, but there's a high risk of, uh, of that being a false positive because the sample is so small and the number of events is so small. But because in the TTM2, and it's kind of very carefully chosen, presumed cardiac origin, we know that, that that population has a mortality of 50%. Therefore, survival is 50%, and you can assess neurological outcome with good statistical power and reliability. So that, that's another real strength of the study. Minos, the um, results of the TTN True trial were released mm. earlier this year. What did they show? Yeah, so they basically showed equivalence of the two arms in terms of the primary outcome, which was mortality. And then also in what's important to clinicians, which is neurological outcomes were very similar in survivors. And also the third thing was patient-centered outcomes. So the patients were able to use the visual analog scale of the EQ5D and indicate in the survivors, you know, how they felt their quality of life was. And so even from a patient-centered perspective, the quality of life was equivalent. So really across mortality, um, robustly assessed neurological outcome using the modified ranking score and also the patient-centered outcome of the visual analog scale. There was no difference between the two groups. And the only thing is the adverse events. If you look at adverse events, and the study is not powered to, to look at adverse events, but there, there was a difference between the two groups in terms of hemodynamically significant arrhythmias. So arrhythmias that required treatment, either electric shock or, or noradrenaline or vasopressor increases. Or So there was a difference, 24 to 16%, you know, uh, with the 24% being associated with hypothermia. So in the population that we we assessed, there was a higher risk of significant adverse events, but they obviously didn't have an impact on the neurology because you know the neurology as measured was similar between the two groups. So when you look at all of that, those are the results. They, I mean, yeah, we have to try and interpret them, I guess. Think about what they mean. Yeah. So on the basis of that, I guess, to mm. summarise, there doesn't appear to be any improvement in mortality. There doesn't appear to be any improvement in neurological function for survivors. And there mm. appears to be a signal that could suggest harm, mm. which would ultimately lead us to believe that why would you um, call anybody on that basis? But the implementation of this study is, I guess, open to some interpretation. You you did mention that um, the patients needed to be sedated in the control arm as well as in the uh, the intervention arm. Yes. And as also you mentioned that about half of patients did require a cooling device as part of the control arm. Mm. If we are to abandon therapeutic hypothermia, what do you suggest that we should be doing for patients as a standard? Should they all be sedated for 40 hours after uh, admission to ICU and, uh, and treated with aggressive uh, anti-fever measures? 
That's a really good question. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, you know, um, what works best in departments is that people, you know, discuss results like these and uh, come to a group opinion on what to do and then implement it because you get very good at doing the same thing. You know, if as long as a group of clinicians, you know, uh, are focused on doing one thing, you, you get better and better at doing it. Um, my personal bias is to interpret these results as meaning, you know, it, and I would you, I favor uh, a simpler, less invasive approach to to things generally. And I think this kind of supports that maybe fever control is a reasonable is a reasonable thing to do. Now, how you do it is very much up to you. The trial used a specific protocol using sedation for that period of time, neuroprognostication, you know, and conservative um, measures for withdrawal of care, um, which I think are excellent, you know, because they really focus us down on, on evaluating the patient clinically and looking at two or more supportive features from investigations to support, you know, the decision of prognosis. And I, th I think it's a useful way of doing things. It's a very good way of doing things. So if you wanted to, as a group, to adopt the control arm, I think that would be a very reasonable strategy. Um, because the truth is, as we've said, we don't know whether fever control is beneficial. Um, that's one way of doing it. Another way of reading the trial might be, you know, that I will use a simpler form of fever control. You know, I won't sedate for 48 hours, you know, 40 hours. I, I'll, I'll just use fever control in those that are, you know, perhaps um, more, um, more comatose, you know, who are requiring sedation for management of agitation or, or otherwise. Um, and, and they're both interesting questions. Do you know, should you, you know, is fever control beneficial? And the other one is, should we be, if fever control is beneficial, should we be sedating for 48 hours or should we just be waking them up and reacting if we need to, you know? And there, there are two groups in that group. You know, if you wake up people and they're neurologically close to their normal, you know, um, and they're interacting with you in an appropriate way, you, you'd feel very comfortable, even if they had a fever, perhaps of letting it ride or just using pharmacological agents. But if they're kind of in that, they're a bit cerebrally irritated or they're a bit drowsy, you know, what you do in that setting is, is difficult to know. You know, maybe you do have to re-sedate and, and cool if you think, you know, it's, it might be beneficial. Um, yeah, they're good questions. They're good questions and they remain unanswered. And it might be that TTM3 looks at this, you know, um, it, we're having a lot of discussion about what next and, you know, what would be interesting to take on. Manoj, one of the other questions that's been raised about TTM2 is the time to target temperature. Yeah. Um, there's clearly a relationship between uh, or a neuroprotective effect of hypothermia, and we've seen that in deep hypothermia for cardiac surgery in the past and uh, patients who, for example, fall into frozen lakes and have very good neurologically 
a neurological recovery. So there seems to be some relationship between the onset time and the impact of hypothermia. Um, Some have pointed out that it's taken up to five hours for patients in the um, intervention arm to reach that target temperature. Amongst you as um, investigators, how do you see that factor? Um, And what would be the logical next step uh, in trying to tease out whether that's a, a factor or not? Yeah, this is great. This is so such an interesting area. Um, so timing is clearly important. The reason, as you've eloquently expressed, you know, we use it prior to cardiac surgery, you know, um, and and it works. Um, I think. Look, there is um, five hours is the quickest that we could do it in centers that were very experienced and used to um, both hypothermia as an intervention, but also had cardiac cath facilities, um, high volume centers. Um, so that was the quickest we could do it given given probably you know everything being as good as it could be. But the question remains that, you know, um, if you look at the other, so so there's a bunch of studies that have tried pre-hospital cooling. Do you know the RINCE study, Stephen Bernard's, um, there's the PRINCESS trial. Um, there's a couple that have used nasal cooling, you know, pre-hospital in cardiac arrest. And look, none of those trials have demonstrated a signal for benefit. Um which is disappointing, <laughs> you know, because you, you, it goes against that. That early, um, surely there there is an effect, but none of them, and some of them have actually suggested a bit of harm, you know. Um, so that's that's one set of data, I guess, if you like. But the other thing, I think, the other thing that we could do is get together with the people who develop who, who deliver eCPR. You know, so so these are cardiac arrests from the community that come into hospital very quickly and immediately put on ECMO as part of their resuscitation. And, you know, that group of patients probably arrive to hospital within half an hour of their cardiac arrest, you know, and you could randomize them to two different temperatures, you know, 33 and 37, because they're on ECMO, they're unconscious. You know, we could potentially organize a study i mean it'd be low volume numbers because you know you're dependent on an ecmo retrieval center it would take a long time it's not necessarily generalizable you know unless an ecmo cpr service is available everywhere you know it's but it could answer that question of whether cooling earlier has a benefit um the the other area where there seems to be an effect is neonatal birth asphyxia, you know, and in that that model, if you like, the neonates are born in hospital, do you know, they're recognised as having an insult during the birthing process, and they're immediately called, and there's a bunch of small clinical trials, all with the same kind of direction of effect that added together show that these neonates have improved function. And, you know, the cooling is much quicker than the five hours that we could achieve. Um, So I think uh, there's more work to be done. You know, uh, we've done the best trial that we could 
in in the model where patients are brought into hospital, they're resuscitated, and they undergo angiography and, and you know all of that whilst we try cooling. You know, we've done the best trial that we could. There doesn't seem to be an effect. So if tomorrow a patient came into my hospital, or you know, we'd probably do do well to get the temperature down even at five hours, maybe six hours. You know, so I, I think maybe fever control is more reasonable you know for now until we answer the fever control question but i think there is still an answer an unanswered question about whether if you can get to patients early enough and get the temperature down quicker you know perhaps there is a benefit but be mindful that that pre-hospital the pre-hospital studies that we've had so far haven't haven't been able to demonstrate that um yeah, I wonder whether we could organise ourselves to do an eCPR study, as well as you know, assess the fever control side of things. I think the nice thing about hypoxic brain injury is that it's a it's a disease that we manage as intensivists. You know, it comes to us from the ED. The cardiologists are involved, but they largely leave the management, even of the circulation as well as the brain, to us. So it, it's harder in traumatic brain injury because we, we're dealing with trauma, people, neurosurgeons, there's lots of people involved. Um, so it's more complex to get agreement. So this is actually a, a nice, hypoxic brain injury is a nice model for us to move forward in understanding how temperature control could could um, ameliorate brain injury or not. Um, so there's a bit more work to be done. Just to conclude, what yeah. are the internal discussions amongst the TTM investigators about what that next trial might be? Mm. Look, at the moment, the favourite seems to be maybe fever control, answering that question. Um, and it's being discussed. The guys in Lund are very much driving the process. Um, and... Look, I think we feel that it would be good to start to develop something in the in the next six months, you know, so that we can get grant applications in and and start trying to construct it. But we we really want feedback from the community, you know, about you know about the design of that study. You know, if we were to do fever control, what's an acceptable upper limit of normal for for no temperature control? You know. Um, Bear, bearing in mind that people have strong beliefs, you know, how can we, how can we do this? Um, but yeah, so we will be, I think in time trying to, you know, have discussions like at the ANZIC CTG meeting and also on Twitter and other things to, to gain kind of insight from the community and the design of that, that study. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe fever control, although I think the ECMO CPR thing, um, I think that that needs some thought, you know, we, it'd be complicated to do, but it would be lovely to to think about that. Mm. I know. Thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity to talk, Todd. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For great interviews just like this, as well as our entire collection of podcasts, modules, quizzes, articles, and videos, download the My Osla app from your app store or visit our website at oslacommunity.com.